Welcome to episode 5 of Herpetological Highlights, the show that brings you, well, hopefully the most recent and up-to-date findings, scientific findings in the world of herpetology. I'm Ben Marshall. Co-hosting this with me is Tom Major. What do we have in store for folks this fortnight, Tom? Uh, Well, this episode we're going to be looking at venomous lizards. Venomous lizards. Yeah. Not very many of them. No, there aren't. Although... Well, yeah, we'll get into that later. There might be. There might be. <laughs> There's more than you. Don't think. start too soon. <laughs> less than you'd hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, well, predominantly, we're going to be looking at Gila monsters and Komodo dragons. Mm, which... A sort of two-parter episode. Yeah, really. double whammy. Um, I mean, two of the coolest lizards going. So, the first paper we're going to do, we'll look at um, Gila monsters and how they're making being exceptionally lazy really, really work for them. Um, the second one, we'll have a quick look at uh, what Gila monster venom actually does when you poke it into a person. And then we'll go on to look at Komodo dragon venom use and what they do with it and the fact that they actually have it. Mm. And uh, we'll round off the episode with a little bit of Komodo dragon ecology, how they sort of change throughout their life yeah. history. Gen- general life history stuff. And of course, species of the bye week to round us up. Are we going to give it away or are we going to leave... Oh, I think we leave it as a surprise, yeah. don't we, surely? <laughs> Needless to say, it's... It won't all be lizards, that's all I'll, that's all I'll say. Yeah, that's a, little, that's a fair teaser. Cool. Anyhow, enough about the species of the bye week Should we get on to our first paper? Yeah. So uh, the first one is by Ginga, Tracy and Nagy. 2014, and it's entitled Life in the Lizard Slow Lane. Gila monsters have low rates of energy use and water flux. And this was published in Copea. So, Ben, how would you describe a Gila monster to someone who doesn't know what one looks like? Um, big, bulky lizards, quite quite low to the ground, quite chubby, can have quite fat tails with their fat reserves. Not exactly a good-looking lizard in a lot of respects. They do sort of look at sort of brutish with a big blunt faces dark coloration all over but with rather distinct bright orange splotches i think that uh, gives a rough overview yeah they're really like heavy built stocky looking creatures and a very distinct type of scalation where it's not how you'd think of say gecko scales or something like that they have these sort of little perfectly spherical beads well the other the other species in the genus is um, the beaded lizard, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah, that the, they get their name from. Yeah, I think that sums them up. Yeah, I mean, they're really cool-looking lizards, orange and black, striking colours. Um, and as it turns out, they've got good reason for being orange and black. They call that sort of aposomatic coloration, don't they? Which yeah. is sort of like a warning. Stay away from me or I'm going to cause you trouble. Yeah, exactly. You see it in a lot of poison dart frogs and stuff like that. Exactly. And, um, I'd imagine that's why these guys are that colour as well. Um, interestingly, their name, their scientific name of the Gila monster is Heloderma suspectum. Um, and Helos is ancient Greek for sun, and uh, derma means skin. So the genus name is sunskin. Um, interestingly, I actually had a conversation, like bizarrely, two nights ago with a taxi driver um, who was like, <laughs> He was like a language aficionado, and he was telling me about sunflowers and how he remembers the name of them. By Gila. Yeah, because their whole genus is Helianthius, yeah. which is like sun, so they're sunflowers. So then as soon as I saw Heloderma, I was like, oh, oh yeah, sun skin, guys, which is quite cool. <laughs> um, and Suspectum is actually Latin for mistrust. 
So they're sun-skinned lizards who can't be trusted. Hmm. Could that be the sort of deceptiveness of them being have more bite than uh, quite possibly? Yeah, so I would imagine like they should. Yeah, I don't know how long they've known about the venom, but I would imagine it's got a lot to do with how bad their bite is because yeah. they, they look kind of docile and chubby. Well, they look like a sort of big puff skink in a lot yeah. of ways, don't they? Yeah, they're not. Yeah, but then as it turns out, if they bite you, it's going to hurt quite yeah. a lot. Two subspecies. The one you've just mentioned, the sort of. Uh, what do you call that? The main... Nom- nominal? <laughs> nominal? Yeah. yeah. De facto. Default species. Mm. Uh, that's that's found in the sort of southern area of where Gila monsters are found. And then you've got a northern one, which is Heloderma suspectrum synctum, which is found all across the uh, northern range. And their range is sort of southwest United States and northern Mexico. Yeah, yeah. So you, your classic uh, Western U.S. desert environment—that's what we're thinking about here. They like it pretty arid, which um, is actually what the authors in this first paper were interested in. Mm. Was actually exactly how they're so successful in a place with so little water and seemingly not much food. Well, it was an incredibly extreme environment. These deserts—you have temperatures ranging. This is the Mojave Desert we're talking about now. This is in Nevada, so very Western states. You have temperatures ranging from like 33 and a half degrees in the summer all the way down to, what was it? I think they said nine degrees in, in the winter. So you've got a big uh, seasonal shift in temperatures and you've also got a big daily shift in temperatures. And these are lizards that have to deal with that year in, year out. But they have some adaptations that uh, the authors talked about in their introduction to deal with sort of living in a desert where there's not much water. Mm. And... Um, one of these is they actually have a bladder that can also be used as a reservoir. So they can essentially store water in the bladder as urine. But then when they decide they're a bit thirsty and there's no water around, they can suck the water back out of the bladder and use it. <laughs> I like how it's a conscious decision in your version. <laughs> I could do a little drink. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Just you know, soak it back up. We've all felt like that, haven't we? I'm really thirsty. <laughs> I mean, Bear Grylls does it, but... The Gila monsters do it without. It's a little bit more elegant in Gila monsters, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, this there was a paper in the Journal of, Ex- Journal of Experimental Biology in 2007 by Davis and Donado, and they looked at this um, water storage and water use of the bladder water in Gila monsters. Um, and it actually turns out that healers that have a full bladder are better at regulating the electrolyte water balance, so like the mm. balance of essential ions in their blood um, and in their bodies. And they proved that they actually took water out of the bladder because ones that had a full bladder were better than ones that didn't at, yeah. at regulating this electrolyte balance. And it had to be coming from somewhere. Exactly, yeah. And um, I, I laughed at this paper because one of the things they also described was like, if you show a Gila monster water, it will binge drink. <laughs> <laughs> it's everything it can at every opportunity because it's so ready for it. Exactly, but... Um, they, they just go crazy for water. It's like some, a stereotypical behavior where if you put water in front of them, they'll just guzzle it down. And um, they apparently can drink up to a fifth of their body water in one sitting. Of their body weight in water in one sitting, sorry. Um, which that's a lot of water. I mean, that's... I, I did a little bit of maths. And as, as it turns... <laughs> that's brave. Yeah, I know. One time only. <laughs> and as it turns out, that's like me drinking 14 litres of water in one go. Yeah, see, that would 
cause proper problems. Yeah, if you, you die. did that, that would be yeah, <laughs> you game over. You're not like going to be in a good state. Seven large bottles of fizzy drink. Well, I think the fizziness would would do all sorts of numbers on you, <laughs> yeah. just the water intake. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but just to clarify, these healer monsters are just drinking water. They don't like fizzy drinks. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Maybe yeah. they go mad for it. Yeah, but they're pretty amazing lizards to yeah. be able to do that. It's quite cool. And it's worth mentioning the reason for this this love and binge drinking of water is because, hey, guess what? Desert has incredibly uh, intermittent rainfall. And in the Mojave, you'll get sort of low-intensity rain over the winter, but then you'll get this one big sort of monsoon level rain event in the midsummer that can account to something like 29% of the entire rainfall for the the whole year. So if you're living in an environment like that and that's your only chance to get water, you better make good use of it. Yeah, absolutely. It must be um something that people who keep them in captivity have to consider not to give them water all the time because mm. I mean, presumably... They'd... It's the equivalent of overfeeding your animal, yeah. yeah. Perhaps they can tell when they're not thirsty anymore, I don't know, but you'd have to be careful, because... You would. Yeah, you wouldn't want to give them too much. Um, so, yeah, as the title suggests, they have low rates of energy use and water flux. Um, did you want to go into the methods, or should we go straight to I those? wanted to touch on one bit of the methods, Yeah. only because it's something that I have never heard of being done in... Uh, ecological studies and i've only heard about it and read about it in uh paleo climate stuff and that was using uh what was it oxygen 18 levels to work out water flux so what oxygen 18 is used for in climate stuff is you'll do your ice core and pull out little little bubbles and they'll have a ratio of oxygen 16, 17, and 18 different isotopes, and the relative balance between, well, usually 16 and 18, because 17 is very, very rare, will give you an indication of how, well, where the water was distributed around the Earth at that time, because oxygen 16 and 18 are uptaken and dispersed through the water cycle at different rates. Okay. So one's more readily found in ice, and one's more readily found in water. Right. And the balance between them gives you an idea of how much ice and water there was at that time in that bit of the ice core on the planet. And in a weird kind of way, that's kind of what they do with the, the Gila monsters, although perhaps not as elegant, where they injected the Gila monsters with a standardised water mix that contained uh, oxygen-18, and then when they recaptured them later on in the season, they could take a blood sample and work out how much of the oxygen-18 was gone, and how close it was back to a normal uh, isotope balance, and that gave you an idea of how much water they'd lost, and how much water change had occurred. Which I thought was wicked. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. really, really... I've really... never heard of that being done in animals, and... It's really novel. It's, uh... Well, I, I don't know, maybe it isn't. Maybe, maybe it's quite it's... standard. But it's the first time I've ever read yeah, about it, yeah, and it yeah. was an interesting method. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And in fact, I think one of the times they they were saying that they had to re-inject the healer monsters because they would expel all the the enriched water that they had had injected into them. So they had to top it back up and you know redo it again because they had already passed through all that liquid. 
So they were back to trace levels again. Okay, why was it, what, they did it quicker than they expected, is that? Well, I'm not sure if it was quicker than they expected, but it was certainly, there was enough overturn of water in the Gila monster that they had to to re-enrich them, basically. Mm, cool. So, um, well, they did. They found out, didn't they, that they use an exceptionally low amount of water. Well, they're just massively efficient animals, yeah. Not only do they not very, really drink very much, um, and they use very little water, but they also need a remarkably low amount of energy to get by for a whole year. So, yes. So, so their measurement was a mean of 3,766 kilojoules of energy for a year, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... I, I went into my fridge, was the first thing I did, and I, <laughs> I picked up some butter and I looked at it, and that's 125 grams of butter mm. that run a Gila monster for a year. Yeah. That's absolutely insane. That they'd, would run... they'd love to get their hands on that butter. Yeah. They'd gorge themselves on it. They would. They'd binge butter, almost <laughs> certainly. But, like, that's absolutely mad. Mm. That would run a human for, what, a couple of hours? Gila monster for a year. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, it, it's just in a totally different league of efficiency. It's, it's quite remarkable. But that's the other thing that they looked at during this study. I suppose we should actually step back a little bit mm. and give a bit of details on what they actually did. And it's, once again, I mean, we talk about radio telemetry a lot. It's because it's a very useful method in herpetology. They captured a bunch of Gila monsters, stuck radio transmitters on them, took baseline you know, details of weight, size, that sort of stuff, tracked them around, tracked their movements, got ideas of where they went, when they were resting, uh, were able to take temperature measurements in the field of their resting temperatures and temperatures of activity and that sort of stuff, and generally worked out how much energy was being used for these monsters over the entire year. That That's the, the core of this paper. But bringing it back to the food, we said they binge drunk water, they do binge eat food as well. This is this is what was quite neat, is you'd have... What were they saying? They, they, they came out of these very limited times during the year, which we'll go into a bit more detail in a minute, and then just ate everything they could find, everything they could get a hold of, and there are reports of them breaking into tortoise burrows and just consuming everything, <laughs> every egg there. And there's a great paper describing this by the same same guys, or same guys, actually, Geinger and Tracy, 2008, Ecological Interactions Between Gila Monsters and Desert Tortoises. And that was in the Southwestern Naturalist, where they just describe several instances of Gila Monsters sidling up to tortoises, usually female tortoises, in a, uh, in a burrow or near a burrow, and trying to get past the tortoise. The tortoise is trying to make itself big and block the hole. Gila Monsters getting around, trying to butter around the outside. Tortoise rushes it, biting its legs, trying to scare it away. <laughs> and some of them are amazingly... Um, what's the word for Tenacious. It? Tenacious. There you go, tenacious. And there were monsters that would keep at this at one tortoise burrow for an hour and eventually get in there, consume every egg inside, leave on, go on to the next one. So these poor tortoises have the entire reproductive output of a female gone in one Gila monster snack. Terrible. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, or at least we presume it's a whole reproductive uh, output. For, you know, they, they might... They might do multiple batches. And, yeah, but regardless, that's still else. an awful lot of a loss. It's pretty impactful, and they were sort of bringing it up in the context of both of these animals are somewhat threatened. 
and trying to work out a balance between protecting one but not robbing the other of a food source. Quite a difficult management management balance. Oh. Yeah, just can't you can't just pick your favourite. <laughs> not really. I mean, I yeah. Sorry, desert tortoises. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a rough life, to be honest. Yeah, blimey. So, um, what else do they eat aside from eggs? They eat pretty much anything you can find, right? They sort of scavenge and hunt and do whatever. I mean, you, you can't be all that picky in a desert mm. because your food's relatively limited. You've got to take what you can get. Yeah. So, insects, other reptiles, eggs, small birds, if they can catch it, them. I mean... From the uh, tortoise paper, it just seemed to suggest that it was a very common occurrence in going for tortoise eggs. And even the monsters would use the tortoise burrows as shelter sites and cohabit them with female tortoises. Interesting that you know, it's 15 out of 16 times they were found in tortoise burrows. It was with a female tortoise. Mm. So they can presumably... they're, they're clued in to where the eggs are or where they will be in the future. Mm. And is that because... The females are the only tortoises that nest, or because the healer monsters can sense that it's a female going to nest? I don't know. I don't know about the male tortoise activity. Hmm. Be interesting. I presume that they have to go burrow themselves because of the, the intense temperature. Yeah, you'd think the male tortoises would be sheltering as well. Yeah. That's really cool, though, to think that they're after the females' eggs. Yeah. So healer monsters, obviously, they can't just steal eggs from tortoises all year round because that's only a short window. Yes. Well, their whole year is sort of built around exploiting resources, be that water or poor defenceless tortoise eggs. So they sort of come out in spring, early summer, where they're eating, but there's not much water to take on. But that's the sort of peak output in terms of activity. That's where they're using up a lot of their energy. And in fact, over the entire year, two-thirds of their energy is used when they're outside, although they spend the majority of their time underground. So it's a massive mismatch between when they're using their energy compared to how long it's being used. It's one of the biggest variations that you'll see in, in reptile species and also one of the biggest variations between what their resting metabolism is compared to you know, their energy use when they're running around hunting for things and drinking water and whatnot. Then we move into sort of early summer and that's when... You get some higher temperatures, so the activity starts dropping down for the monsters. But then you'll get a bit of rain around September time, or that sort of that period. This is when they'll sort of pop out a little bit just to take advantage of that water and back down, back underground again. And that really spells how they live their lives. It is very much underground for the majority of the time, pop out really intense, get those resources back underground. And when they're underground, they're just literally using virtually no energy they're almost so little like if, yeah. it's as close to a lizard can be to being switched off yeah I and mean, this is what is amazing is that they're just so incredibly efficient when yeah. they need to be it, 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 and yeah. all the physiological mechanisms that underpin that kind of a, a shift are incredible as well it'd be really interesting to see how their organs respond to being completely immobile for months at yeah. a time yeah um, I just yeah, just one thing to note. An adult Gila monster that weighs 350 grams, in a year, it would only eat 552 grams of food. And that's if the food is wet. So that's food containing moisture. That's not dry weight of food. Mm. Which you've also got a slightly downplay because we know that they do get their water from standing water and not purely from their prey like other mm. carnivores might. Yeah. They are 
super efficient machines. Mm. I love it. Remarkable. I think that's one of the things that makes reptiles so cool for me, definitely. just They just use... They're they just so don't different. waste anything. No. Yeah. No. No, it is, it is remarkable. So just as a sort of closing remark on that paper, one thing that they suggest that should be done in the future is compare the patterns and the seasonality of this Gila monster population that they studied to others and just see how well they are in tune with the seasons, how flexible they are when it comes to rain coming later or earlier, see how much sort of redundant capacity they have or how much contingency these monsters have. And that's something that's incredibly important when you're dealing with, you know, big climate shifts, which are, of course, going to happen. Hmm. So they need to work out whether or not they can they can be more energy conservative than they are. Well, or... yeah. How far can you push a Gila monster until you push it over the edge? Or vice versa, how well would they adapt to a wetter environment? Just anything. See see how adaptable yeah, they are. It could That'd even be, be very interesting. if there's more food available, it would do them harm because they wouldn't be able to resist eating it. <laughs> They'd just gorge themselves and be fat and get stuck in tortoise burrows. <laughs> could be. Could be. <laughs> Climate change comes for us all. <laughs> Through overabundance for yeah. monsters, maybe. <laughs> uh, remarkable creatures. Yeah, they are fascinating animals. So, um, so sticking to the Gila monster theme, our second paper is also about Gila monsters. This one's by French, Brooks, Ruha, Shirazi, Chase, Boson, and Walter uh, in 2015, and it's entitled Gila Monster Envenomation, Descriptive Analysis of Calls to United States Poison Centers, with a focus on Arizona cases. And this was published in Clinical Toxicology. Yeah, we wanted to sort of look a little bit at the venom of these guys and what sort of impact that has on, on people living side by side with them. Not exactly the most relevant biological quantification of their venom, but it's curious no, no, to see. No, not at all. But it, it's nice to know. And always when you're dealing with con- conserving a creature, human and whatever you're trying to conserve conflict can be critical. And having an understanding of that's pretty important if you want to save it. Yeah. So in this paper, they reviewed all the calls that were made to um, the American Association of Poison Control Centers. Mm. So these are just centers uh, all over America that you can ring up and get advice and report cases and times where you've come into contact with something poisonous. Um, Poisonous also stretches to venomous stuff. So it includes snakes and venomous lizards and spiders, you name it. Yeah. All that stuff. Probably jellyfish too, right? I would imagine so. Yeah. Not many jellyfish in Arizona, but across the rest of America. Yeah, you might fall in an aquarium tank or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and what they did was they looked at all the times um, Gila monsters had been mentioned in calls that had been transcribed, and they came up with 70 bites on people for this study. Yeah. Um, that said, there probably are more. Uh, the Institute of Medicine estimates that only about 25% of all poisonings are reported. I mean, that's pretty standard. You see that across the world. You're always going to get under-reporting of these things because people get bitten by stuff and, you know, walk it off. Yeah, I exactly. I read a, there was another thing they mentioned as well, that only 53% of snake bite by venomous snakes are reported. Mm. It's crazy to think a lot of people just shrug those off. Well, there's a difference between shrugging them off and going to a place to have them treated and it not being reported to the poison centre yeah. because it can just miss that final step of being reported to this yeah. final authority because if it's a very common snake or common envenomation sort of thing places know how to deal with it and it doesn't go any further they don't need any additional advice yeah. and it just sort of slips in there in terms of record keeping doctors have got a lot on on there i suppose well yeah and if you're somewhere that gets a lot of snake bites and you have the resources to deal with it 
you can just get on and deal with it and it and it doesn't come back yeah but um what they did find was that a significant portion of the Gila monster bites were actually to to males 84% of the bites mm. were on males i think a lot of that was down to the fact that um a lot of them were done on building sites and things like that it was when people were working yes it did seem that quite a quite a lot of them were work hazard or work related injuries essentially yeah there is kind of a discussion a debate in snake bites as well about this like sort of male bravado thing being an element to it i'm not sure if that yeah, plays into it yeah i mean i don't know i it's hard to argue when you have something that's over 80% male and over what was it 77% were on upper extremities where it's clearly someone's tried to pick up and move the monster mm, you know i don't i don't want to sort of perpetuate a non <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> a non-fact, but it certainly seems that way, and it certainly seems what quite widely, yeah, widely said. And I don't know; it's difficult when you don't have full reporting details to really work that out. Mm. But fortunately, none of these bites actually killed anybody, right? That's right. Yeah, zero, no one died. zero deaths and no one died. Monsters. Although that said, the um the the effect can be quite nasty. Not not pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. The um. Edema, which I learned means swelling. It's just a posh way of saying swelling. <laughs> I do some of these these posh medical terms. Yeah, like literally, <laughs> what's, what's wrong with swelling? You know? uh, well, there's another good one. There's uh, paresthesia, which is that tingling, like pins and needles <laughs> sensation. <laughs> that's called paresthesia. That's paresthesia. Oh, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Well, and hypotension that's come up in a previous episode. That's low blood pressure. These are all things that you get from a Gila monster bite. Yeah. But edema, one of the places that you get swelling is in your throat, mm. which obviously a swollen throat is not ideal. It it's can be quite, yeah, yeah, can do uh, you a bit wrong. Can be dangerous. I mean, straight up, they're dangerous. I mean, I'm getting a little bit of my information from a different paper by Ashurst and Cannon in 2013, Healer Monster Envenomation: A Review of Emergency Medicine Physician from JMed Research, and they just did a sort of general overview of what happens and what's going on. But one interesting point they bring up is that to be envenomated by a helium monster, that thing's really got to get on you and get on you good because they don't have a particularly efficient delivery system. They're not like um, an elapid or, or some sort of snake that has a very refined, you know, bang for buck, bite yeah, you, they venom don't... in, job done. Yeah, they don't they just have sort the of same. gnaw on you. And it might take up to 15 minutes of being gnawed on for venom to actually be delivered into your body. Which, you know, when you think about it, you've got to, Oh man, you can't get this lizard off you for 15 minutes? That's. I mean, we've all been there though. Pleasant you're, you're working, you're moving some rubble, a lizard bites your arm. You think, ah, oh, I'll sort that out within 15 minutes. Yeah, I'll just finish this job first. <laughs> Crack on. Have a cup of tea. Yeah. Oh, he's still on there. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting what you say about their venom delivery system, though. It is a little bit more um, rudimentary than mm. with a, a snake, because, you they, know, They snakes... do have grooved teeth, so there is a little bit... Teeths? Teeth. <laughs> so there is a little teeth. bit of sort of direction yeah, to it. Yeah, but then, yeah, they've got grooved teeth, but also their venom comes from the lower jaw as well, whereas opposed to... Snakes where it's in the upper jaw. So, yeah, it's just kind of like... It's not like a sort of... You know, there's different kinds of venom delivery in snakes. You've got the grooves and, you know, some mm. of it can be injected under pressure, some can't. But this, it certainly can't, like you say. It's basically just a mangling, gnawing until they yeah, get the job done. Yeah, it's pretty blunt. Um, they also suggest, which I'm 
Mm, I don't know. In two minds have they suggested it's more defensive than used in predation, which makes sense if they're eating eggs because you hardly need to, you know, get an egg to stop moving. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen a rowdy egg. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm. It would also make sense with the coloration if it's defensive. Hey, you know, don't come at me because I'll bite you and it will be unpleasant. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. It, I would have thought if you wanted a defensive venom, you'd want it to act real quick. Quick, get off me. I don't know. Maybe it's just not as refined and it's you know, still in the early stages of... <laughs> yeah, it could be. ...getting it right. Hmm. I guess it depends on what their predators are. Because, mm. you know, if it's like coyotes and stuff like that, even if they bit them and then the effects came 15 minutes later... Would a coyote draw that gap? It would just probably think, oh, I've got a swollen neck now. It wouldn't be <laughs> conscious of the fact that it was the lizard that it bit Maybe. it earlier. I, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's what the, these guys suggested was the sort of accepted reason for them having venom. I, it's defensive. I, 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 yeah, that's mm. what they said. I wonder how much work has really been done on that. I, I don't know. Yeah, we can't really say either way. The other well, slightly less pleasant bit was the methods people used to get the Gila monsters off, which unfortunately weren't great for the Gila monster. We had a couple that they poured petrol on their faces to get them off. That'll do it. That, that worked. If you want to pour petrol down a Gila monster's mouth, that's not great. The other one is uh, they got a lighter or some sort of flame and applied that to the belly or the tail of the monster. Again, that's not pleasant, but I suppose if you've got to get a healer monster off you, you've got to get a healer monster off you. It'd be nice if there was a method that wasn't burn it or whatever. <laughs> um, another one was, was cutting tendons in the jaw, basically just to remove their ability to clamp down. Again, you're sentencing that monster to death. But at the same time, we had examples of... If you just put them on the ground, they just let go and run away. <laughs> I think that was Which, only one, wasn't it, that did that? There was one that did that, but yeah. it did seem like most of them, you could just sort of get it off without having to destroy the poor animal. Yeah. And There again, I don't, I don't know. know. To the to the layman, if there's a venomous lizard attached to your arm, you just want it gone, don't you? You do, you do, but... You know, they're just trying to live their lives. They don't need to be burnt with a lighter to... Perhaps that's an area off. for... Um, American outreach organisers of lizard conservation to, to focus on. How to remove a chomping down <laughs> heel monster. Maybe they already are. They probably already they are. They probably already are, yeah. I'm not privy to it, but yeah. Yeah, I, it was cool paper. Like, it's it's worthwhile them doing it. And it's quite cool that they just literally got all the records and wrote a paper on it. Yes, it was a nice sort of insight into how much of a burden heel monsters are on people. Yeah. Turns out probably not that much. Mm, extremely negligible, I would yeah. say. Yeah. yeah, especially with the lack of depth. I mean, but they do have a bad reputation, I think, in a lot of places. Yeah, well, you know, they're not exactly pretty-looking lizards. No, no. And anything that latches onto you for a good amount of time is going to get a bad rep. True. Yeah, very true. A little nick and then run away. Yeah. Well, um, there you go. There you have it. Gila monsters, Heloderma suspectum. Cool lizards. Well worth a... Well worth a little bit of research on that. Desert specialists, not particularly venom specialist, but still has a, <laughs> a cool, unique aspect going for them. Yeah. Neat, neat brutes of the desert. Yeah. Shall we switch over to the other venomous yeah. lizard of the evening? Yeah, we'll swap over to our, our second half, our part two, which is... Komodo dragons. Varanus komodoiensis. Yeah. Varanus... 
pyramid lizard that comes from Komodo. Yeah, straight straight up, up and down, easy one. So um, the first paper on Komodos is by Perwandana, Arafandi, Imansaya, Sino, Kyofi, Letnik, and Jessup, entitled Ecological Allometries and Niche Use Dynamics Across Komodo Dragon Ontogeny. This was published in Science of Nature in 2016. Mm. Do you want to just uh, define a few of those words? Happily. So, um, ecological allometries. Allometry is the study of how body size uh, alters the shape, anatomy, physiology, and behavior of animals. Mm. So, basically, essentially, it's just get bigger, change how. So <laughs> I like that. Get bigger, change how. Yeah. That's going on a grant application. So if you think about it, like a baby, a baby's head is freakishly massive. <laughs> if you saw an adult with a head the same ratio to body as a baby, you'd think, wow, this is like the top-notch circus. But it's things change as you go. And not only do their bodies change, but also the way they behave changes, their use of yeah. habitat changes. Um and how these two interact. Exactly. Yeah. So, for example, you might find that a... Well, I mean, you know, every single animal you think of, this happens. Like, a seagull isn't born in the middle of the ocean catching fish. It starts off mm. chilling on the roof of somebody's house and putting all over the windows and stuff. So, it all changes. It's all yeah. change in nature. Yeah. Uh, niche use dynamics. That is just sort of... A niche is the area of the environment which an animal fits itself into what it does um and what resources it makes use of precisely yeah, yeah. and um ontogeny is just a posh way of saying changes throughout a life so it's kind of mm. similar to allometry but um ontogeny can be anything so it, like you can have ontogenic color change which is where an animal starts off one color and then grows into adult colors any change throughout the course of a life is ontogeny yeah i guess you can have ontogenetic Allometry. Yeah, I think one would, you could put one as a subset of the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, so you can say that all allometries are ontogenetic, but not all ontogenies are allometric. Is it that way around, or is it the opposite? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea at this point. But yeah, that's that's kind of like what they're getting at. They're just looking at how the title essentially just means changes in Komodo dragon life as they get older. Yes. But if you were to write that in a title, people go, ah, it's a bit basic. This, oh, wow, science of nature paper. <laughs> I know, yeah. I mean, fair play to them, you know. No, they are more precise meanings than just yeah. how it changes. But that is the real core of it, is what happens, gets older, how does it change? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so let's do a little bit of an intro about Komodos, I reckon, because some people might might not, I mean, everyone will. No, I'm... Um, I don't know how you could be listening to a podcast like this and not really have a passing knowledge of what a Komodo dragon is. But I think for completion, completionist's sake, we should mention it. Yeah. So they're just monstrous lizards, aren't they? They're fantastic. They're, there's a reason that they're kind of the logo of this podcast is because they're just superb creatures. They're, I mean, they're jaw-dropping, really. They're massive. Biggest lizard in the world. Yeah. Uh, up to three metres long. They also weigh up to 90 kilograms, um, and they can live 60 years. 60 years? That's a long lifespan for a lizard. Yeah. The Gila monsters, Gila monsters, the Gila monsters, by comparison, I think the max age for those guys were 27 years. Wow. I mean, that's so, still a fair, fair old back. It's pretty old for something that 
you know you think about it, isn't massive. Mm. Bigger, bigger you get, the older you live. Mm, makes sense because you've got to expend a lot of energy just to get that big. Anyway, you might as well spend some time being that big. Yeah, no, that's flawless logic, actually. <laughs> I don't know if that's actual science, but I'm like, completely taken with that as an idea. So yeah, fair play. Um, yeah, they so Komodo dragons are from Indonesia. They're found on five islands: Komodo, Rinka, Flores, Gilimotang, and Padar. Gilimotang. Gilimotang. What a fantastic name. Well, Gili just means island in uh, Indonesian, so it's just Motang. I don't know what Motang means, but um, yeah. Motang Island. But, yeah, I, I yeah. derailed you from that, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I shut up, like <laughs> shut up. <laughs> um, and then uh, they're just really cool. Uh, I actually was fortunate enough to go to Komodo Island. Yeah. Have you heard that story? I have. Didn't, <laughs> didn't you ride one around? Yeah, pretty much. I wrangled it, and then it was my pet. But then, obviously, they're quite strict. <laughs> they're quite strict about taking... Uh, well, you know, he, he didn't do that. That's, that's not <laughs> yeah. what he did. Disclaimer. It's a joke. I am actually a professional, so if you were to try and ride your own, at least ask me for some advice first. <laughs> no, you mustn't ride them. You know, make yourself a little saddle or something. You don't want to hurt them. Yeah. Hurt, them hurt them, dragon. Yeah, no, did like a boat trip. <laughs> the, you know, the, the tourist thing. Yeah, the classics. I mean, that's something that's actually quite well set up now in Komodo. Is it used to be just Feed a them. free-for-all where they're just bringing carcasses. Yeah, off you go. And have a look at Komodos. Now it's a little bit more controlled and they've separated off the island to a very protected very much very very low impact research area and then a sort of buffer area and then this tourist zone where people can mm. come and go and, and where there's like it's a lot it's a lot better structured than what it used to be yeah i thought it was quite good when i was there i mean i did get quite like probably closer to a komodo dragon than i should have but um they were just kind of sitting around everyone was pretty like physical <laughs> about it not ideal yeah you don't you shouldn't really go that close but tell you a fun thing if you want to see what it looked like in a sort of weird roundabout kind of way, um, is to watch David Attenborough's Zoo Quest from 1959. All those are freely available on the BBC Archive website now, and I've, I've shoved shoved the link in the show notes on uh, the Podbean website. And it's just a half hour, you know, program which is Zoo Quest, and it's just Attenborough talking to camera about his trip to. Well, it's a whole six-part series of his trip to Indonesia and stuff like that. But the final one is about him going to Komodo and not just looking for these dragons. His mission, of course, because it's back in 1959, is to capture one and take it back for a damn zoo or whatever. And <laughs> it's the zoo all... quest was just like nowadays oh, modern man, documentary be... meets Pokemon Go. It was yeah. I it is great to watch just to see how far we've come in terms of. Sort of respect for the animals and things, but wow, it's a really bizarre look at Amber's earlier years. Because he's out there living on this boat, he with his with his guides and his I don't know mates, <laughs> <laughs> whoever it is, and it's all silent footage with him talking over it, and they fashion this this big cage out of bamboo and sticks and vines stick half a goat in it and try and capture this monster this huge <laughs> Komodo dragon and at one point this little one comes in and tries to get the, the goat and they have to run out and chase it away because <laughs> they want a proper big specimen to take back to the to the UK and I, I think it transpires in the end they didn't take anything back because they didn't get an export permit but they tell you what they did manage to catch a dragon <laughs> it's just <laughs> the the trials and tribulations of Attenborough in Indonesia they're 
bizarre but fantastic. Wow, yeah, definitely. Highly recommend ZooQuest. Yeah, yeah, we'll put up the link so everyone can enjoy yeah. that. But, um, Hopefully it's accessible to everyone. I don't know if it's going to be region restricted. Mm. but It may well be. But I think because it's so far old and it's archived that it yeah. might be okay. Yeah. But um, when I was on Komodo and Rinker, I didn't catch any dragons, but it was, it was pretty... <laughs> you didn't it, do a makeshift cage. No, they're, they're awesome places, though. It's pretty exciting. Like, you rock up on the boat, and it's kind of like really, really hilly, borderline mountainous island, and then just like covered in green. It li- it just looks mm. like Jurassic Park, and you know there's these there's just crazy prehistoric lizards up there, and it it's an awesome, awesome place. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like you say, tourism's reasonably well managed there. I know visitor numbers are... I think they're on the rise, but... I mean, I don't know. It's difficult. I feel like as long as you've got a core, safe breeding population, that it's best to do it that way because it's always going to be tourism. Mm. So at least buffer them against it. Mm. I can, you know, I don't know the details of it all, but it seems like that's the best way you can manage both of those those needs. Yeah. So um, sort of back back to the paper. This idea that reptiles change over the course of their life makes a lot of sense. Um, because they start off really, really small. Tiny. Yeah. 80 grams, isn't it? it yeah, 80 grams for a baby Komodo. I mean, yeah. that's that's little. Enough to feed a Gila monster for a year, though. Not quite. Not, 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 I thought it was 500 grams yeah, they no, needed. No, I was just thinking of the butter analogy. There. <laughs> if a Komodo dragon was as nutritionally or calorie-rich as a water butter... So you'd be fine, yeah. But yeah, like you say, they start off at 80 grams, they're tiny, um, and their parents don't really help them, so they've got to be hunting. Well, a little bit. They a do little guard bit. the there's nest. A, there's, exactly. There's, there's a good paper by some of the same guys, actually. Erefendi et al., 2015, in uh, Biowack, if you say Biowack. Like Biowack. I think you do. Biowack's a really cool free journal about yeah. uh, varanids. It's all about monotonism. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And they describe... Um, nesting activity for Komodo dragons and just because we're going to get into the whole Komodo dragon life in a second I thought it'd be nice just to paint a picture of their very first moments and the sort of nesting activity there so you've got to imagine a big sort of semi-shaded forest mainly made up with uh, tamarind trees of all things delicious delicious tamarind trees and this is inhabited by a rather funny looking bird called the orange-footed scrub fowl, which is a dumpy little creature, maybe about 30, 40 centimetres tall, great big orange feet, cool little quiff, brown, not not particularly becoming bird, but quite neat. And they make nests in the forests. Komodo dragons use these nests when they're abandoned. They burrow them out, and that's where they lay their eggs. Lay their eggs sort of August time, hatch November sort of time, and... They will, as you said, guard the nest during that whole time. Little juveniles come out later on and start on their little their little lives, spend the first couple of years arboreally, and off they go, starting around 80 grams, ranging from sort of 50 to 100 centimetres. So they found in this study, and there were 16 in one clutch. Mm-hmm. So it's quite nice. It's not actually um, amicable relationship between the scrub fowl and the komodos because the scrub fowl do get eaten by the komodos but there's a bit there's a bit of cooperation there the komodos are making use of resources already there the, the abandoned nest mines hmm. but that's that's your first days of a komodo is coming out of this ready-built bird nest and cool off it goes and there's a fantastic picture in there if you want to see an adorable baby komodo dragon 
That's they're really cool when they're babies. They're like yellow, spotty, they're all jeweled. Yeah, they're great. I actually saw a baby when I was on Komodo. It fell out of a tree and it scared the life out of the guide. I think the guide was on high alert because, you know, it's got all these tourists following him around. Like, oh, where are we going to see a lizard? And then this, this lizard, tiny little baby fell out of the tree right next to him. And I think he thought it was a big one waiting in ambush or something. And he, oh, he, he jumped a mile. It's hilarious. Yeah. But it was really cool as well to see a baby one. I was really impressed it's quite with that. Quite special. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely amazing little creature. So um, the idea behind this paper was that they were going to look at sort of how prey size preference changes, how their movement rates change, home range area, and um, their niche use, which we discussed mm. earlier, change as they age. Um, yeah, because it's such a dramatic change. Yeah. It's 80 grams to like 85, 90 kilograms, a thousand fold increase over uh, 20, 25 years up to the whole 60 years of their whole life. That's rapid. That's dramatic. There is no way they are living their lives the same way from tiny little lizard to massive monster. Well, as we've already mentioned, they found out that um, the little ones, they, people knew this already, but the little ones, pre, pre-juvenile, sort of like less than a kilogram, mm. they spend a lot of time up in the trees. You just, Almost exclusively, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't do that if you were a adult Komodo dragon. There simply are not the trees. <laughs> no, you just smash stuff when you, yeah, you it, smash stuff and you fall out. It would be hellish. Um, <laughs> but they did find out that um, as they get a bit bigger, they, their sort of uh, habitat use starts to overlap a bit more. Um, mm. Pretty much any size above juvenile prefer open deciduous forests, low elevations. So they are overlapping. Um, it is a it is a gradual shift. Yes. Although, 20 kilograms, there is a hard change. There is, massive, yeah. Yeah, where they suddenly stop using uh, the more arboreal environment and shift their prey from... Well, they stopped using the more arboreal environment quite a long time before that. Well, but they're still occasionally foraying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but yeah. then it's a hard, hard cut, hard shift in prey size too. This is where earlier ones are eating invertebrates, small birds, small rodents, lizards, that sort of stuff. And suddenly you see this shift at 20 kilograms mm. to larger prey like civets and pigs and... Deer. Deer. Yeah, much yeah. bigger bodied animals. And it, in a way, this kind of reflects the prey that's available to them because the groups of prey that they have access to are kind of quite discreet themselves. Yes. You've got either small stuff or big stuff. There's mm. not really a middle ground for them. I mean, the civets are kind of a middle ground, which you actually do see the kind of... Probably in... harder to catch than other stuff, though. Yeah. I imagine civets are, out of all the prey, this... one of the toughest. Probably the most sly, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they... Uh... They do, like you say, they switch over to deer and pigs. And alongside this change from deer, from small prey to big prey, they also change their movement rates and home range area. Mm. Um, Once they get to 20 kilograms, well, prior to being 20 kilograms, their home range is like steadily increasing. Their movement rates are steadily increasing. Um, But then as soon as they reach 20 kilograms, they start to decline a little bit. Yes, Um, and and then level out. Yes, uh, and this kind of reflects the fact that they're not really cruise foraging around anymore looking for prey. They're not sort of walking around looking for prey. Yes, the active foraging has ended. Yeah, yeah. they're essentially now ambush predators, which is, in my opinion, way more cool. They're just sitting in the bushes and hoping for a deer or a pig to come along. And uh, what the adults will do, they'll hang out in one area for a little while, um, occasionally moving a short distance, sitting in a new spot, hiding in ambush. And then after a while, every now and again, they'll do a really big move yes. to an entirely new area, 
where they'll do repeat that process again. Yeah. They'll do little moves, ambushing. And that kind of makes sense because if you're an ambush predator, you don't want to sit next to your own poo. You, or exactly, you, you start new... building up cues that prey items, prey items, prey creatures, <laughs> not items until they're dead, <laughs> will pick up on something. Oh, I can smell a Komodo dragon. I'm going to leave. Yeah. I did want to touch on you bringing up this pattern of lots of small moves and one big move. They call it Levi. Yeah, Levi flight or Levi walk. Yeah. And if you really want to dig into this, I found this fascinating. It's something so that I, I really want to do more reading on in the future, but it's not exactly simple because it's... Yeah, I read I read a couple of papers specifically about it and it really was hard to get my head Yeah, around. so the one I read was by Sims et al. in 2008 uh, in Nature, a big fat-off nature paper that was looking at marine life. They were looking at a couple of type basking sharks, cat sharks, turtles. That's where they were looking at the... They were taking a movement... They were taking a, a turn as like the change in depth, right? Mm, yeah, it was, oh, it was tough to get. Your head it was around. endlessly complicated, yeah. But the point was that they were looking at how animals deal with looking for prey outside of their immediate sensory range, because obviously a predator's not going to know where the next meal is going to come from if the next meal can't be seen or heard or you've got no idea. And it was very well described by this Levi walk or Levi flight system. Which can be best... Uh, well, I found the best description they mentioned was fractal, where you have this this pattern that, as you sort of zoom out, re- it repeats itself. It's the best way... <laughs> it's not for me to describe it, but to look up fractal and just look at a picture of it, and it's this repeating, expanding pattern. Kind of like a network. Yeah, a network with... but infinitely scalable, mm. if that makes any sense, what I'm saying. And it's just remarkable that this this pattern can be found in prey density and predator movement. And although they don't prove a, any sort of mechanical link between the two, it makes a lot of sense that this is developed side by side. Yeah. One taking advantage of patterns displayed in the other. And it seems like a lot of organisms that have been studied use this hunting strategy. It like, is quite diverse. Even yeah. down to like bacteria, yeah. penguins... Um, it feels like you're tapping into one of those overarching laws of nature yeah. where it just this happens to be a pattern that works amazingly well and everything just tends towards using it. Yeah, I found that really yeah. interesting. I got really excited it's, it's, by this. I'd never heard of it before, this Levi flight foraging pattern. Yeah, and I'd never heard about it in this in this context, but it's something where it makes a lot of sense. It feels yeah. like I mean, you you think know, it sounds it, efficient. Even if you think about it in terms of being a Komodo dragon deer are large and they're mobile and they're always foraging they're going yes. around there's no sense keep trying in the same place you You've need got to, to get have out a there big difference to, yeah. yeah but you can't you can't just randomize it entirely because that's not like strategic enough they they've got to go to these new areas and then try out that entire area and yes. then go to another new area and it's, try a, that entire it's a balance area. of cost uh, cost effort isn't it and yeah. this happens to be a very efficient pattern of doing that maximizing that very interesting stuff. It is. It is. Difficult to get your head entirely around because it is quite mathematical in places. Yeah. But the core of it is very practical and makes sense in an ecological context. Mm, definitely. So um, so what, what we can really take from this paper is that Komodo dragons are pretty solitary. Um, they do occasionally feed on large prey as a team. If if there's uh, if there's been a kill, then they'll kind mm. of all converge on it. Or if there's some carrion, like if a water buffalo dies, yeah. they'll all rock up. 
they don't tend, you know, they're not territorial in that sort of way. I'm sure a lot of people have seen the Planet Earth 2 footage. Oh, amazing. Of them fighting over mates. Absolutely incredible, Again, yeah. link to a clip of that in the, in the show notes, because if you haven't seen that, go and watch it, because it's just two Komodo dragons fighting each other. It's phenomenal. They're massive creatures, and they're getting fully into it. Yeah. But aside, yeah. It, they only really do that. Um, if they're guarding a mate, which is quite unusual, yes. and um, if they're like in a really good basking spot and another male comes, or if there's a big prey kill and they're trying to battle the other one away, generally speaking, like you say, they're not too territorial. Um, something else I read, which was from um, an Affenberg 1981 paper, a lot a lot of good ecological stuff about um, Komodos in that, actually, mm. was that um, the mating system's promiscuous, so they're kind of just easy going with it which is kind of interesting although obviously they do guard mates occasionally exactly that's that sort of goes against the mate guy because you would have thought that's quite a lot of energy to expend if you're just going to be breeding with whatever you can get but i guess if you've got mate honey you've at least got some sort of guarantee and you can i suppose mate guard a lot of times if the energy expended is actually a small proportion of your entire energy expenditure hmm yeah, so it sort of talks about how they exploit different niches and they're exploiting different niches over time. And one of the sort of cool takeaways I got, or they explicitly say, is that they suggest that because of this multiple niche exploitation of Komodos, it almost enables them to act as an entire predator guild all at one time, all as one species, because they're taking advantage of so many diverse niches mm. which kind of explains What's a how guild? a guild would be like like if you had a whole Sorry bunch of several different species of civet or something like that each civet species would take advantage of a different mm. niche or different aspect but here we've got one species essentially doing the job of what could be fulfilled by many different species you could have you know three or four varanous or monitor lizard species you know, one that's very arboreal, taking advantage of that prey, a larger terrestrial one that takes that sort of prey, an open area one, a closed canopy one. But here we've just got Komodos doing everything. Mm. I mean, talk about a successful species, and there's no no wonder they're quite dominant, because they've sort of really nailed down these island ecosystems. Mm. It's fascinating to think of them in that way. Yeah. Just like four animals in one. Yeah, uh, I mean, it makes a lot of sense if you're changing size that dramatically. If you have that diversity in one species, you're going to have to be competing with a lot of other species at different times during your life. It's cool to think of island gigantism. I know the island gigantism thing, I think, is a bit disputed for Komodos because there was the uh, Megalania that was kind of like on mainland Australia. Yes, well, and the other thing is these guys, these weren't always islands as well. There's yeah. a whole... Sahal area of Indonesia in between Australia and all that. Yeah, there was a lot more land there. But it's kind of cool um, to think of like if island gigantism was the reason for them getting so big, then it's cool to think of them just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and kind of inventing new niches for themselves as they grow. Yeah, and just taking over. Yeah, it, yeah, it's quite remarkable. Be that the case or not, I don't know. <laughs> what I also do like when whenever people. We talked about Flores. Yeah. And just as a little side note, fun sort of thing to imagine is Flores is where they found Homo florensis, the tiny hobbit people. Oh, God. Just imagine that in your head. You being this tiny three-foot hobbit person, wandering around, doing your everyday stuff, and you're living side by side by a lizard that is monstrous and will eat you. God, imagine that. Imagine life back in 
you know, before they were wiped out by whatever they were wiped out by. Absolutely terrifying. <sighs> Hobbits versus Komodo. <laughs> I would back the Komodo every any day. Time. Any day. But it would be cool to see like 15 Hobbits with spears <laughs> taking down a dragon. <laughs> it just beggars. It's sort of. You wish you had a time machine to see that sort of ecosystem in action. Brutal. So we've learned a bit about Komodo dragon ecology. We understand a little bit about these beasts now. So perhaps it's time to move on to our last paper, which is a central role for venom in predation by Varanus komodoensis and the extinct giant Varanus megalania prisus. Uh, this was published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the United States of America, by Fry, Rowe, Tuis, Osh, Marino, McHenry, et al. It says et al there, 2009. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of... Uh, right, there's a, a lot, lot of, of authors. authors. There's a lot of authors, yeah. essentially. Um, it uh, is open access, you can go read it yourself, because it's Proceedings of the National it's Academy. It's really cool, it's really cool accessible paper as well, I liked it a lot. Yes, I, I think so. So, before we start on this discovery of Venom, actually it kind of is part of it, so it kind of is starting it, but... Um, the traditionally held belief was this, that Komodo dragons had weaponized bacteria in their saliva, which mm. I believed for a long time. I mean, I didn't... Well, there was any never reason. anything alternative suggested, wasn't it? It was just like, okay, that's how they, they deal with things. There weren't obvious indications that there were venom. But nothing has weaponized bacteria. That's doesn't, like another level. No, nothing? Nothing at all. That's like the next level of evolution. I don't know, I've always... It always seems like a very long game to kill something via infection. Yeah, absolutely, it does. But also, like, I suppose... It seems quite risky. seems like you give the prey a lot of time to get away, to, well, work it out, to, to overcome it. And also, we talked a lot about venom being a very... Or venom and constriction and other methods of dispatching prey being very rapid and sudden and get the job done so you minimise risk to your mm. predator... Weaponized bacteria is the opposite. Well, it seems like it would take forever. Yeah, it seems mm. seems quite risky. So in this paper, they were looking at uh, essentially the the build of the skull of a Komodo, comparing it to that of a crocodile, and also taking a really close look at the glands in the mouth, and then looking at the saliva and venom and seeing exactly what was in. It was really sort of thorough. They looked at lots of different things. Yes. Um, yes, it was. A, it was the plan was to put to bed this discussion whether they had how they were dispatching their prey basically what weaponry do they have mm. and so in their in their comparison of komodos and saltwater crocodiles they looked at what sort of bite pressures the skulls and jaws could take and they found out that komodos bite with only 39 newtons uh, compared to a saltwater crocodile which will bite at 252 newtons mm. um However, one thing they did find, which was a major difference between saltwater crocodiles and Komodo dragons, is that Komodo dragons have venom on their side. Yes. At the same time, I do not want to get bitten by either. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I would actually honestly roll my dice with a Komodo bite over a saltwater crocodile bite. I think so, mm. yeah. You can treat the hypertension and shock associated with a Komodo venomous bite. You can't treat... Enormous mangling and underwater death rolls with, oh, with traditional oh, medicine. Yeah, it doesn't bear thinking about really getting caught by a salty. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, while we're on the subject, Komodo dragon venom was found to be coagulopathic, so your blood won't clot. Um, hypertensive, so your... Massive drops in blood pressure, yeah, right? your blood pressure yeah. drops. Um, 
hemorrhagic, makes you bleed, and also puts you in shock. Yeah, so there was a pain-inducing aspect to it, wasn't it? Yeah. It comes down to if you're going to have a venom, you might as well hit him with as many things you could possibly create as you can, and just it's a full assault. Yeah. Yeah. They've um, we did like I said, they have a weak bite force, but their teeth are big and serrated, and they can also withstand a pulling motion. So the theory is yes. that they kind of grab on, they yank, cause these lacerations, these deep cuts, and then the venom flows down their teeth from the glands in their lower jaw, and. Yeah, essentially, but not grooved teeth like the uh, Gila monsters. They are just serrated, bitey teeth. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> made for for biting and tearing, as opposed to any sort of injection yeah. or. But what's cool is that the venom actually is delivered between the teeth in like multiple mm. places. So whereas with a snake, a cobra, or a pit viper, whatever, they have two fangs which inject the venom essentially. Um, with a Komodo, they, the venom just like drizzles out between their teeth. So when they're doing this cutting, the venom is just leaking into the wounds. Um, Which then, you know, lends a lot of credence to how people thought it was a bacterial thing or a saliva thing, because there's no obvious mechanism there, unless you're using what they used was an MRI scan. So it's all sort of hidden and quite hard to find. You can forgive people for previously thinking it was bacterial or saliva. Yeah, and it's one of those ones where people have been saying it for so long that everyone's just kind of like... Well, yeah, it's common, oh, yeah. It's common knowledge at yeah. that point, yeah. isn't it? you know, the Komodos, the one with the weaponized bacteria yeah. that no other animal in the world has. <laughs> yeah, so, like you say, it went unnoticed for a long time. Mm. Um, but the fact that these glands and venom are still there in the Komodo dragon is evidence enough that they're still using them because these proteins are quite costly yes. energetically to create. You know, you don't just... Do it for fun. No, so they are still using them. Um, otherwise, yeah, they would evolve, evolve to lose them and just deal with their serrated just, teeth. Just bite it real hard, yeah. And it's not just, you know, we talk about what the venom does and it's relatively potent. It's a hell of a lot of venom they produce as well compared to other monitor lizards and stuff. It's, I think they were suggesting uh, they could produce perhaps up to 200 milligrams of venom, which seems just an absurd amount when supposedly only 16 milligrams will take down a deer or incapacitate it to the extent that it can just be eaten part of that speaks of just how big they are and it's sort of an overkill make sure the job's done kind of also speaks that the delivery method is so inefficient that you have to pump a lot out and have a lot ready just to make sure enough of it gets in your your prey to make sure it does what it needs to do it's pretty interesting isn't it yeah. They're just leaking it out all over the place in the hopes that that bit goes in the wound that is enough to kill. Yeah. And I suppose even though, I mean, with the effects of the venom, it doesn't have to be able to quite kill. The shock-inducing thing is going to immobilize. That's and there true. was yeah. anecdotal reports of animals that were kind of quiet and just like, after they'd been bitten by a Komodo, they were behaving all sheepish. Yeah. And it's because they're in terrible pain and they're in shock. Yeah. I mean... <sighs> it's a terrible way it to kill something, but they truly are monsters. Yeah. And... It... I should mention that this other monitor lizards do have levels of venom as well. This isn't like a just shot in the dark, what they were coming up with here. Um, Varanus farius, right? Well, Varanus farius and Varanus bengalensis. Bengalensis has actually been known to kill people with its venom. Really? Yeah, there's a paper by Vikrant et al. in 2014, which is a monitor lizard inducing kidney failure, and that ended up killing the person in question. Crazy. It was sort of a, le- you know, it was levels of complication, but it got to the point where enough venom, I suppose, had been delivered and 
Mm. It wasn't immediately understood what had happened and things got... Yeah. Varanus bengalensis is the like Southeast Asian mm. uh, Bengal... Is it just called a Bengal monitor, I think? Like uh, presumably, I yeah. suppose it comes from the area, you know, yeah. Bay of Bengal. Smallish and monitor area. compared to a bearded dragon, like kind of, they still go, go in trees and things like that, but... Compared to a bearded dragon? Compared to a bearded dragon. No, compared to a bearded dragon, they're massive. <laughs> compared to a Komodo, Komodo dragon. Komodo dragon, yeah. dragons on the brain. No, um, yeah. And then the other one I mentioned was Varanus varius, which is mm. the Australian goanna. They're, they also have some venomous. Yeah, so it's not completely mad to think that Komodos would also have this venom. All this reading about lizard venoms got me intrigued into venom evolution, which I can tell you is... A seriously deep and multifaceted rabbit warren. <laughs> um, but I, I got onto this um, 2005 paper by Friatal in uh, Nature Letters, um, which was all about uh, the early evolution of venom in lizards and snakes. Yeah. And they put forward this idea that all venom came from one common ancestor, which mm. evolved into uh, iguanid lizards anguimorphs which is like legless and alligator lizards yeah. snakes and monitors and also the helodermatids which is the beaded lizards and gila monsters that we yes. mentioned earlier the traditional venomous lizards yes um and they kind of put them all in this clade which is just a really high grouping together they all evolved from one point which i thought was really really cool i was reading that paper and i was like oh yeah that's, that's really nice yeah let me guess, you came across some papers that maybe suggested that wasn't the well, case and there's yeah. been multiple instances of venom development. <laughs> wow, it's almost like you have some prior knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, but it's, just, it's, it's yeah. just sort of general yeah. stuff well, I've picked it's up. It's kind but... of still a bit of a grey area. Like I think the majority of people think that actually there was multiple um, evolutionary mm. instances where venom came about later. Um, there was a paper by um, Hargreaves et al. in 2014 in Toxicum um, which was kind of looking at different genomes and trying to work out where these um, venoms actually, the ones that the original authors had used to say this is where venom came from, testing them and seeing you know how abundant these particular genes were in other animals yes. and uh, where they were in animals. And they actually showed that the genes that Frey and co. used as evidence um, for coding venom actually don't necessarily always code for venom at all. So they they actually could just be sort of general housekeeping genes that code for other proteins. Yeah, or they're linked to something else. Yeah, exactly. Co-expressed with something else. Yeah, just because they're found in the venom doesn't mean they're for the venom. You do have to identify that sort of mechanistic link between the gene and what it does. Yeah. And uh, the example they used was that the leopard gecko had many of the venom genes, despite Mm. the fact that um, it even had them in its oral glands, actually. But... The leopard gecko is an exceptionally basal species. Like it evolved really, really early. Yes. And they evolved long before the supposed common venomous ancestor, which all the ven venomous animals later allegedly evolved from. Yes. So you had this leopard gecko with, with a load of these genes, genes, but and kind of the, showing that they yeah. weren't necessarily for the venom. Um, that said, like I don't think the single evolutionary ancestor of venom has been completely debunked. Like people. I still believe in it. I don't know enough to say either way. I don't think anyone does. I think this idea that there's multiple evolutionary lineages for venom is very likely because if you think about it, conversion evolution, you see it everywhere. You do you do see it everywhere. Well, see it everywhere. I mean, you do see it. It's hard yeah. to prove. Yeah. It, you know, it's hard to dig into because, yeah. of course, you've got a lot of things that don't exist now that you'd want to 
incorporate into your analysis a lot of extinct lineages and all sorts of that stuff, which makes it pretty complicated. You're dealing with with stuff you can't see. Yeah, and to probably define convergent evolution, convergent evolution is where two two animals evolve or not even animals, could be plants, could be anything, evolved to have similar characteristics despite being completely unrelated. Yeah, think of tenrix and hedgehogs. Tenrix, hedgehogs, birds and bats even, at a very simple level. Winged flight. They have wings, yes. Yeah, but well, I suppose that's completely fair. Completely unrelated, yeah. yeah. Um, for the for the hobbyists out there, yeah. green tree pythons and emerald tree birds have been apart <laughs> for a long time, and they look the same. <laughs> they really do look the same. Um Essentially, we need to look at more animals and their genomes and try and work out. It's you know, it's a job for the geneticist. Oh, really absolutely. fascinating stuff. Yes. So yeah, what this paper said: Komodos have venom and they use it to kill stuff. Yeah, I mean, ruthlessly. That I feel like was pretty well supported. The venom's there; it's been identified. What it does has been suggested and you know recognised. Doesn't seem that ambiguous, this bit, no. regardless of its common ancestor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought the venom evolution thing was really interesting. Oh, like, it is. It's definitely yeah. something I want to I wanna get into and learn more about. Yeah. Well, talking of ancestors, do we want to discuss the largest, possibly venomous brute of an ancestor of Komodo dragons? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Megalania. Megalania. Or, or Ravenous Priscus. Absolute monster. Could have been up to two tons in weight, but probably more likely about half a ton. Could have been seven meters long, but probably around five and a half meters long. <laughs> People love it, don't they? Yeah, well, I mean, what are you going to do? You're trying to you try to engage people with this this past, no longer existent animal. You do, you know, giant monster. It could have been this big. This is, if you extrapolate from these animals, if you extrapolate from these ones, maybe it wasn't this big. Either way, it was a monster. And it may have been venom-producing if the ancestor of all these monitors also had venom and could have produced 1.2 grams of venom if everything scaled, which is a hell of a lot. I mean, what on earth that could take down with that amount of venom beggars belief. Presumably some now-extinct megafauna. Yeah, or, or hobbits. Or hobbits. I mean, hobbits slice and dice. They wouldn't stand a chance. <laughs> But yeah, Megalania. I mean, Google some photos of Megalania compared to a man. It's unreal. Just yeah. to think of a monocylizer like that walking around, just so, so cool. Well, basically, he was suggesting that whatever was previously thought about Megalania now suggesting that it was this sort of combined arsenal predator making use of well, scavenging and stuff like that, but also has the venom, has the bite, has claws, has tail. You know, it's got these multiple weapons to deal with and dispatch its prey and defend itself. Which, you know, is a nice little insight into something that no one's ever seen before. Mm. Whether whether it actually stands up is a whole other question. But it's neat to have a little uh, a little idea of how these guys lived their lives. Really cool. Several, well, thousands of years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's easy to get. They definitely capture the imagination. Yeah, and that actually counts for a lot. There's a, there's a book um, by Tim Flannery in 2002, which... It's basically a recounting of the ecological history of Australia in various bits, odds and sods. Um, quite a fun, fun book, really. It's quite easy to read, although it is, you know, it's got good references. It's quite scientific in that respect. And one of the things he suggests, I think quite playfully, I don't think it's a real serious recommendation, 
But he plays with the idea that because these massive Varanids have been removed from Australia, there's this big niche missing. And perhaps it would be a neat idea to rewild Komodo dragons to mainland Australia to fill this niche and to uh, make use of resources, depress certain populations of, I don't know, invasive camels, overpopulating emus, goats, goats you know, high populations of kangaroos, whatever the heck the uh, baronids would go after. I just love that idea. <laughs> it might be completely absurd, but I just love the idea of there being more Komodo dragons in the world and then being easier to go see. <laughs> yeah, it would be really fun to have them all it's over Australia. It's probably massively irresponsible to try <laughs> anything like that, but it, that now that captures the imagination I don't know, from where I'm saying, you've just given it a pretty sound ecological grounding, <laughs> so like, let's get them there. Well, yeah, I mean, you've, you've got to drill into whether those giant monitors were taken out by humans and it is there is that niche available to them or was it actually something quite natural as climates shifted mm. and you know seas changed and home ranges shifted and tropical yeah. i don't know get the komodo moved. emporium on the phone order me a thousand <laughs> <laughs> get them in there get them in now yeah <laughs> Oh, I think it's just a fun, fun idea, even yeah. if it would never happen. It's cool. No, it's really cool. Be, yeah. Perhaps that's a, a logical, maybe in just one park as a conservation tool, just have them there and then have a little bolster population in case the maybe. native ones get... As long as that doesn't undermine native uh, I mean, it conservation would, it efforts. Probably would. <laughs> It'd probably be incredibly irresponsible yeah. to suggest. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Komodo dragons and... Gila monsters, venomous lizards. As it turns mm. out, lizard venom is a thing. Don't just think of snakes in terms of venomous reptiles, because yeah. lizards are here and there to stay. Hopefully. Shall we go on? Have we done the Komodos justice? Have you got anything else to add? I mean, I'd like. I I don't think we have done the Komodos justice because they're they're far too fascinating and there's there are more papers i'd like to read on komodos i'm sure we'll revisit them at some point because they're just they talk about charismatic megafauna these guys are second to none that being said for this episode we've probably <laughs> we've probably uh done enough on them yeah cool so should we move on to our species of the bye week yeah so this week we have just to switch it up away from lizards a bit of diversity is a new type of poison dart frog, still keeping that venom slash toxicity angle. And this is a paper by Serrano Rojas, Whitworth Villacampa, May Gutierrez Padilla, and Chaparro, uh, published in 2017 in Zootaxa, once again, a new species of poison dart frog from Mano province, Amazon region of southeastern Peru, with notes on its natural history, bioacoustics, phylogenetics and recommended conservation status cool so i think the difference between you mentioned it's poison not venom the difference is venom is kind of administered as a sort of weapon yes. almost like it's deliberately venom is bad injected. If, if, if it bites you yeah. poison is bad as if you bite it yeah essentially <laughs> yeah you eat poison or poison ends up somehow in you without the animal kind of actively going for you, causing a wound and getting it in there. Yes. So like weaver fish is a venom, isn't it? I think fish so. fish that you stand on, it kind of injects it and counts as a venom. I think so. 
I think the definition of venom is actually pretty loose. I don't think that's something we should get into. I feel like there's some some grey area. There's no grey area in science. What about spitting things and stuff like that? Those little bugs that spray out their backsides and things. That's just too much. Yeah. (laughs) We don't know about bugs anyway. I don't want to talk about bugs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there's a new species in the world. A new species of frog. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Who knew that there was more frogs out there? And this one is called Amiriga Shihumoi. Thank you for saying that. You're most welcome. I thought I'd get in there before you tried to. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a bit... Before I fumble away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, do you know, you said this, this is from Manu province, right? In the Amazon region of Peru. Mm. I entered a competition to, to win a holiday to Manu. Did you win? No. That's a shame. Yeah, I didn't win. But I was pretty optimistic for about <laughs> for a little while. For at least 20 minutes. Yeah, it looks really cool. It's a place I'd love to go. Yes. Um, this frog is awesome that they discovered too. The photos in the paper, it's like dark navy, sort of black on top. Mm. Um, those orange stripes down the sides. The orange stripe that goes like along from the nose and then o- up and over the eye. It looks really cool. It looks it's, like it's, it's kind wonderful, of, yeah. looks like really a kind of quizzical frog. <laughs> and then on the belly, it's like blue and with reticulated black pattern. Yes, the belly is absolutely stunning because it's got a sort of almost pearlescent nature to it. It, it, it there's there's some sort of turquoisey colors in there there's some sort of greens in there and it all just looks very shimmery and yeah oh quite stunning and i was like because it said it described the pattern as reticulated and i looked at it and i was like oh yeah reticulated is like kind of like a network and then obviously yes. reticulated python reticulated giraffe reticulated is like one of those kind of weird words you kind of have to see it to understand what it means yes um yeah so these guys are sort of Mainly terrestrial frog found in low vegetation, that sort of stuff. Largely found around streams during the dry season. And then when the rains amp up, they'll venture off deeper into the forests and make use of our resources. Like so many amphibians. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh it's wet. Go! <laughs> Take advantage of it. Well, okay. <laughs> well, you know, you see Gila monsters do it. Amphibians do it. You know, when the resources are there... Go get them, because mm. you don't know how long they're going to be there. And yet I'm so disinclined to go out in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got a tap, don't you? Yeah, true that. If amphibians could work taps, we'd, we'd be in trouble. Mate, there'd be a water shortage in a second. Yeah. Those things, yeah. I mean, they'd, just, they'd love it. They're different from species which appear similar. Uh, they're different morphologically, so they're built differently. Uh, they've got different sizes, shapes of various appendages and bits and bobs they're also a different color they're also genetically different as the authors of this paper decided they are most definitely genetically distinct Mm. um but one thing i found interesting was that they and they mentioned it in the title they tested the bioacoustics so they actually have a different call to their sort of similar species yes i mean this is something that's quite common in identifying new species is you can go out to a place record all your calls and pick out ones that you don't recognize and investigate that further it's quite a nice survey method that we I think we talked about in episode, two. episode two yeah mm. and that's well fantastic you can do that with birds but you can do it with frogs too mm. it's really neat yeah so their call has a longer space between the individual calls and also it's a much higher dominant frequency so they're kind of like the soprano of all the local frogs yeah I did do a little looking on the uh, Zootaxa website to see if they had supplementary information that included a nice clip of the call that I could include and have people listen to, but it doesn't seem to be immediately accessible. It's a little bit of a shame. I'm sure it will be in the future. I hope it will be in the future, and I'm sure it's accessible for researchers working in that field, but it wasn't immediately uh, accessible, which I was a little disappointed in. 
Never mind. I'm sure it will come out eventually and yeah. we can listen to them. One thing they did do in this paper, which kind of um, touches on something we discussed in episode three, was the specific locality information that they gave. Mm. Um, they were like pretty damn spot on with the map. Like you could go there and find these frogs, pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had our big aside with that, so we won't go any, won't go back into that. No, I just thought but it was worth a mention that this is, is a kind of example where this one does give it. Um, yeah, and admittedly, like Manu's a big park and it's probably lots lots of ranges around you'd I hope know. so you always hope that there's good protection for these parks of course mm. that said the authors recommend that uh, it's classified as near threatened by mm. the international union for conservation of nature maybe even vulnerable um because they haven't really sampled thoroughly for it they found it in yeah. nine places and i think the threshold is 10 but yeah it's limited distribution once again which is to be expected of a newly discovered species you don't exactly know how well dispersed it is yeah um also the park is under threat from illegal logging and roads being built and that you know your classic threats to amazon rainforest stuff i mean there are going to be very few things that makes specific use of the amazon rainforest that don't have some level of worry associated with their conservation it's just the way it goes, unfortunately. Yeah, it yeah, it's a shame. But um, in all, a really cool-looking little frog, and like we said poisonous. I do want to point out, if you want to know more about the toxin it produces, the person to go look at work by is John Daly. He seems to be the man who has done everything from the 1970s and 80s on frog toxin and loads of stuff from Panama, places like that. Um, I'll shove a link in the show notes of an open access version of the sort of stuff he does where it's just breaking down what the compounds are in these frogs but I don't know it seems like every time you go looking for what type of toxin does this frog have his name pops up and he's done it and it's there it's the list lots of short papers but you know good short and straight to the point but that's that's where to go if you want to know more about the uh, specific toxin of these guys brilliant Cool. It sounds like a good, sounds like a good go-to guy. Yeah, I mean, as far as every frog I've ever looked, there's been a paper by him. <laughs> I love that. That's so good. So yeah, new species, Amariga shiwemoi. Excellent. Nice little dark frog. Yeah, I think that pretty much rounds off our papers for this week. Yeah. Uh, we do actually have, for the first time, we've got some corrections to make on we a previous episode. We do have a little bit of housekeeping, yes. Yeah, we were honoured in that um, Mark Shirts. Yes. One of the authors, well, the lead author for the Gecko, Lepis, as it turns out, paper, got in touch with us over Twitter and kind of corrected us on some of... Well, some first of the... pronunciation of his name, which, yeah. sorry, Mark, yeah, we didn't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Our bad, yeah. Um, other stuff was us bouncing back and forth on the pronunciation of Gecko Lepis. Apparently, with English pronunciation, it is Gecko Lepis, but in German, it's Gecko Lepis. So we were kind of both right, but in different ways. I think what we can say is that we were both right, but I was less right. <laughs> kind of like Animal Farm, it's creeping in. That's like a bit of an Orwellian one. More right than others. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the other stuff was just sort of a verification on how many uh, Gecko Lepis species there are. And there's sort of two papers to go look at for that. The first one is by Kola et al., 2009, which basically group a bunch together and suggest three species. And then there's a subsequent one by... Horlicek et al. in yep. 2016 um, from Organisms, Diversity and Evolution. And they reinstate or resurrect a uh, one from the Camoras? Yes, Camoras. yeah, yeah, yeah. Camora. Yeah. So that brings us up to four and then 
the Kekalipus Megalipus. Kekalepis Megalipus. Kekalipus Megalepis. Oh my god. <laughs> what is it? Kekalepis Megalipus. Or is it Kekalipus Megalipus? <laughs> Mark, help us out. <laughs> no. Kekalipus. Kekalipus Megalipus. Well, I would. Which yes. one is Lepis Lepis? Gekalepis, Gekalip, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's surely Lepis twice. It's Gekalipis, Megalipis. Yes. Yes. Gekalipis, Megalipis, which brings us up to five. Gekalipis in total. Fantastic, beautiful geckos. Weird defensive mechanism. You know, I hope we find some more. Yeah. We're using the scientific community. Yeah. (laughs) Not not us. Better bet your flight, mate. Well, I'd love to go find one. That'd be wicked, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be absolutely awesome, but... Yeah, Madagascar, cute, a long way away. Cute little geckos. So, um, yeah, thanks very much, Mark, for getting in touch. And like Mark, if you hear us say anything wrong, which I think in this episode is probably fairly likely, we're I, not the experts. More, the more we talk about, the more we're going to get wrong. It's inevitable. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I might have made a hash of some of the Venom stuff. Who knows? So just please do get in touch and let us know and we'll correct ourselves. Yeah, get in touch with us if we made any mistakes. The best way to do that, well, there's numerous ways to do that. Um, you can email us, herphighlights at gmail.com. You can tweet us. We are at herphighlights. Or you can get us on Facebook, facebook.com slash herphighlights. Yeah, that's that's really how to get in contact. As for listening to episodes and stuff, best place to probably do it that has all the show notes and where everything's hosted is herphighlights dot podbean.com but otherwise we're on itunes we're on TuneIn, we're on stitcher cool so yeah uh that kind of concludes our foray into the world of venomous lizards that's episode five wrapped up yeah. venomous lizards cool species of the bye week with a lovely little dark frog hopefully speak to you all in two weeks time yeah thanks very much for listening yeah thank you